future. I wonder if I am choosing the right pathway in terms of how I'm living my life. I wonder a lot of stuff, like what's out in the universe. With the question, what do you wonder? I mean, we could, we could go really, really deep into this. I wonder how long I'm going to have on this earth and if I'll accomplish my purpose. I wonder why people complain all the time. I wonder where I'm going to be at in the next five to ten years. We both wonder, I think, if, if there's ever going to be grandchildren coming along. I wonder if my kids are going to have a good life. I wonder how we got here. What do we wonder about him? <laughs> I wonder when he's going to start to lose some weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wonder. <laughs> So let me ask you, what do you wonder? What do you wonder? We all wonder about different things, don't, don't we? So what is it for you? All of us wonder about small things. That's part of it. You know, we wonder about, you know, what's going to happen next in the TV show we follow or, you know, what the next album's going to be like of our favorite artists. We wonder about what's going to happen next in the movie. If you're a Star Wars fan, you're wondering what's com coming next in Star Wars 9. If you're an Avengers fan, it's what's after Infinity War. If you're a Fast and the Furious fan... How in the world can they do Fast and Furious 44? We have no idea what's going to happen, but you're kind of wondering, right? We wonder about all kinds of different things. This is a time of year for me, and maybe this is true for some of you, this is a time of year for me where I'm wondering just how far my Steelers are going to make it in the playoffs this year and if we're going to get championship number seven. That's what I'm wondering. Now, if you're not a Steelers fan, that's fine. If you're a Cowboys fan, you don't have to wonder about that at all. You know we're not going to be in the playoffs, so it doesn't matter. It's like, whatever, you just enjoy the regular season, you know? But I... I wonder, because, you know, we got six chips already, so I'm wondering when we're going to get number seven in Pittsburgh. We all wonder about different things, and it's, it's fine. I mean, those are, those are small things, and they're fun things to talk about, but it's not a big deal. Then there are big things that we wonder about. And the big things we don't always talk about so much, the big things, sometimes we feel it's a little too risky to be vulnerable and tell somebody else about it. But we wonder about big things, like what's our future hold? We all find ourselves in moments where we wonder about that. We wonder about, am I living the life I was meant to live? Am I, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? Some of us, we, we wonder, well, is there a God? And if there's a God, can I actually have a relationship with him? And what does that even look like? And does he even care about me? Those are huge things to wonder about. They're great things to wonder about. Some of us believe there's a God, but we're wondering, well, what's his purpose for my life? Like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Is there a reason that he put me here on this earth. Some of us wonder if our lives matter or if they're going to matter. You know, are we going to make a difference with what we do? Are we ever going to be great? Because all of us, isn't this true? All human beings, we're all wired. Now, I think we're hardwired by our creator for this, but we're all wired 
to want to be great. I mean, that's just part of it. Remember when you were a kid, you had all kinds of dreams about being great, didn't you? you depending on what your interests were, you dreamed about being a rock star, you dreamed about being a sports superstar, you dreamed about you know, being a movie star, whatever the thing was for you, but you had dreams about being great, and you'd, you'd role-play that out in different scenarios. I don't think that changes when we get to be adults. I think we still want to be great. We're not sure necessarily how to be great at all times, but we want to be great. We want to figure out something to be great about because, let's be honest, none of us want to get to the end of our lives and die and then just disappear. Like, our, you know, nobody remembers us, and there's no legacy, and there's no impact, and there's nothing we've done that lives on beyond ourselves. None of us want that, and so we find ourselves at different moments in life wondering what it looks like to be great and how we're going to make an impact or how we're going to leave a legacy. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, you may, as an adult, you may feel a little bad about admitting to somebody you want to be great, but that's not a bad thing. Like I said, I think that was hardwired into you by your creator. And Jesus, when he was on this earth, you might find this interesting, he actually talked quite a bit about greatness. As a matter of fact, it was one of the main things he talked about. He would talk to his followers and his friends over and over again about it and encourage, he actually encouraged them to try to be great. And he explained to them the secret to greatness. And so if you can't stay with us the whole time, you check out, you know, I'll, I'll lose you at some point. Let me just go ahead and tell you what he said the secret to greatness was. Here, here's what he taught. That you live your life, that you live, excuse me, your purpose in life, that's how you become great. That you live your purpose in life. Not that you live your life on purpose, even though that's important, but you can live your entire life on purpose and still pursue the wrong purpose and end up not becoming great. Jesus taught something a little different. He said, you need to live your life on purpose, but you need to live your life on purpose for the right purpose you got to live your purpose in life. Which brings up the question, because this is a huge idea and a huge concept, how do you figure out what your purpose in life is? How do you figure out what it is that you're on this earth to do? How do you figure out what you should invest your life in so you get to the end of your life and you don't just die and disappear? How do you figure that out? Well, that's what we're going to talk about over the next six weeks as we go through this series. Now, if you're new around here, when I talk about doing a series, what, what happens with the series is each week builds on the other. Because something, especially something this big, I mean, you can't cram everything that you need to think about into one talk. And so we just break it up. So over the next six weeks, we're going to explore this, which means you're going to leave today with a lot more questions than you have answers. That's okay. Hope you'll just track with us over the next few weeks. And if you can't be here, you can follow along through our app. You can search Journey Callaway in your app store and download the app. Everything will be there. It'll be on our website. But this is a really big deal. It's a really big deal to figure out because you're not an accident. You're not here by accident. You were created on purpose for a purpose, and you were gifted. This is, this is what Jesus taught. You were gifted for greatness. You just got to figure out how to get there. Now, this is something, like I said, that Jesus talked about with his closest friends over and over and over again. And the closer he got to his death, the more it seemed like he felt the need or the urgency to help them try to figure out how to live their purpose in life. And it, I think part of the reason he, he felt this sense of urgency is because he knew they weren't getting it. Now, this should be encouraging for all of us. As much as Jesus talked to them about it, they still struggled to figure out what their purpose in life was. And so he just kept circling back to it. And about a week before his death, he ended up having this really pivotal conversation with his closest friends where he unpacks this for them because he realized, oh, my goodness, they don't get it. They don't understand. They're still pursuing it the wrong way. And they're never going to be great because they're on the wrong road. And they think that road's going to take them there, but it's not going to take them there. I've got to help them understand this. So he has this pivotal conversation that I want us to look at in just a second. But you've got to understand the background or the context for this conversation. It happened right after Jesus had done one of his, 
uh, biggest, most incredible miracles. He was in the town of Bethany. Bethany was about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem, if you can picture that in your mind. So he's a mile and a half east of Jerusalem in Bethany, and he shows up. He's got some friends who live there. He shows up, and one of his friends, Lazarus, is dead. He's been dead for three days, and they put him in one of these walk-in tombs, and they rolled a stone over it, and everybody's mourning, and the family's all torn up. And Jesus goes to the gravesite, and all these you know, friends follow him along, and they believe he's going to pay his respects. And when he gets there, he says, I want you to roll the stone away. And they protest, and they're like, oh my gosh, he, he stinks already. We're not doing that. And he says, no, 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 just trust me, roll it away. And so they roll it away, and then Jesus looks at this tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come on out. And sure enough, Lazarus walks out. Now, most of us are thinking, and maybe this is you, most of us would go, that is completely unbelievable. Like, that's why I don't read the Bible, because that stuff can't happen. And you just need to know the people that were there in the first century thought it was unbelievable too. But the, the advantage they had over us is they were there and they actually saw him. So they had this contradiction between this is unbelievable, but this is undeniable. There he is. And they did what any rational person would do. They chose the undeniable over the unbelievable. That's what we all do. When there's a conflict between the two, we choose the undeniable. We try to figure out the explanation. So they couldn't figure out how Jesus got Lazarus back to life. They just knew there he is. And like I said, their advantage was they could go meet with him and talk to him for themselves. They'd seen all this. And so word begins to spread. As you can imagine, it creates quite a buzz. It spreads all the way to Jerusalem, a mile and a half away. Then all these people from Jerusalem start traveling because they don't believe it. They're like, no way a dead man came back to life. So they travel to see for themselves. They meet Lazarus, and then they're like, well, oh my gosh, it did. Don't know how to explain that, but there he is. So these large groups of people start believing Jesus is who he says he is. He's God in human flesh. That he's the Messiah the Jews have been waiting for. Well, this ticks off a group of people in Jerusalem, the religious leaders. And the reason they're so ticked off is there were a group of religious leaders there who served as the go-between between the Jews and the occupying force at the time in Israel, the Romans. And basically what they would do is this. They made a deal with the Romans and said, you pay us, you keep us in power, you make sure we've got everything we need and we become wealthy and we'll keep the Jews under control for you. So they're getting power and wealth and you know all this from the Jewish people and from the Roman people. They're sitting pretty and then Jesus does this, and these crowds begin to follow him, and it's a threat to their power, a threat to their influence, it's a threat to their wealth. And so they decide, we're not putting up with this. I don't care if a man came back to life, I don't care what he did, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. That's the only way we can put an end to this threat, otherwise he's going to cost us a lot. And so they begin to scheme how to kill Jesus. The problem is they know we can't go to Bethany and do it. He's got way too much support there. There'd be a, there'd be a riot. They would kill us all if we tried to do it. So they decide if there's any way to get him on our home turf, if there's any way to get Jesus into Jerusalem, and then we can somehow separate him from the crowd and catch him when he's alone, we'll arrest him. We'll make sure he gets killed. And that's their plan. It's not a secret. Pretty much everybody in Jerusalem, pretty much everybody in Bethany knew that this is what they were trying to do. And it's in that context that Mark, who is a friend of Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends, that Mark records for us, that this happened next. Here's what he says. He says, they, talking about Jesus and all of his friends and followers, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, which made no sense to anybody because Jesus knew what these religious guys were trying to do to him. There's no reason for him to go to Jerusalem and walk into danger, but there he is, and he's, if you can picture this, he's out in front. 
Like his, you're going to see his friends are behind him, and then all the people who kind of started to believe after Lazarus, they're behind them. Jesus is just at the front of the pack leading the way, and everybody's thinking, what in the world? Mark says, Jesus was leading the way, and the disciples, his closest friends, were astonished. This was Mark's way of saying. They were doing what they had done so many times, hanging out with Jesus. They're looking at each other going, what is he thinking? We don't get it. Is he crazy? Like, this is a death wish. But they knew. They tried it before. They knew. You can't talk Jesus out of doing it if he wants to do it. So they're kind of, you know, following along behind thinking this is going to be the end for all of us. This isn't going to turn out well, but what do you do with him? He won't listen to us. While those who followed, all the people who'd seen Lazarus and started to believe in Jesus, while those who followed were afraid because, again, they knew. This is going to be the end. They're going to get him. They're going to kill him. He's walking right into the trap. Why is he doing this? And then along the journey, here's what happens next. Mark says again, he, that is Jesus, took the 12, his closest friends. He took them aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. In other words, Jesus, at some point in this journey, pauses, pulls them off to the side, away from the crowd, and he says, I just want you guys to know, I'm not naive it's not that I don't know what I'm walking into. I want you to know ahead of time exact, that I know exactly what's going to happen to me over the next week. And maybe once you see it all unfold the way I tell you it's going to unfold, you'll have a little more confidence in me. So here's what he tells them. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. We'll hand him over to the Gentiles. The Gentile is just a non-Jewish person. In this case, they're talking about the Romans. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That was it. That's all he told him. And then he starts walking again. Now, if you're one of his closest 12 friends, these guys we call the disciples, if you're one of his closest 12 friends, how are you taking that news? Just put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Would you be overwhelmed? Would you be devastated? Well, you would think so. But that is not exactly how these guys react. As a matter of fact, the exchange that happens next just seems so out of place, and honestly, it seems so insensitive. Look at what Mark tells us happens next. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Now, James and John are two of Jesus' very best friends. So Jesus tells them this, you know, this is what's going to happen to him. He turns around and starts walking. James and John run up to him and say, hey, hey, could, could we step aside again? We need to talk to you for just a second, just a second. And then, I'm just reading between the lines. I'm, I'm guessing they kind of whispered this. They didn't want anybody else to hear then they said this, teacher, teacher, hey, come here, come here, teacher, we just want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's kind of strange after a guy just told you he's about to get killed, right? We should, okay, great, we, we heard the whole killing thing. I hate that for you, but we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Now, maybe if, if you're giving them the benefit of the doubt, you would think James and John are about to say, okay, Jesus, here's what we want. We know, you're, we know you just do what you think's right and never really listen to us, but here's the thing. Maybe if we could just this one time you listen to us and us not go to Jerusalem, let's turn around and go the other way. Maybe you would expect them to say that. Or maybe you would expect them to say, okay, if you're going to go to Jerusalem and you won't change your mind, could, could you at least let us in front, like you go to the back of the pack so we can at least protect you, you know, we'll take the bullet for you. Maybe that's what you would expect them to say. But that is not what's on their mind at all. Here's what they say to Jesus right after he's told them about the kind of death he's about to experience in the next seven days. They say this. Would you let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory? Now, you don't even have to know what that means and it sounds insensitive, right? But let me give you a little background so you'll appreciate this. James and John believed something that actually all of Jesus' closest friends believed and the Jewish people in general believed. 
James and John believed that when the Messiah came that the Jews had been waiting for, and they all had their doubts off and on about whether Jesus was the Messiah, but they had a lot of confidence at this point simply because of what just happened to Lazarus. They believed when the Messiah came that he was going to do something extraordinary. The Jewish people, James and John would have believed this, they believed that the Messiah was going to overthrow Roman rule, so he's going to free the Jewish people from Roman oppression, and that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. But they believed, listen, they believed not just that this Messiah was going to rule over Israel, they believed he was going to set up a kingdom that was like world domination. In other words, the Messiah would rule the entire world. And so James and John are hearing all this, and they hear Jesus talk about the death and all that stuff, and they're thinking, oh, that's terrible for you. But they're focused on the last little line where Jesus said, and then I'm going to rise, and they're thinking, they've been waiting for him to set up this kingdom. They couldn't figure out why he hadn't done it. So now they're hearing this, and they're thinking, well, maybe that's the cue. Like, maybe he's going to die. We don't know why he has to do that, but maybe he's going to die, and then he's going to come back to life just like we saw him do with Lazarus. He'll do it with himself, and that's going to be the cue for him to set up the kingdom. And at that point, they're going, okay, as soon as he sets up his kingdom, we better get ourselves in position. We want to have the top two seats in the new kingdom, in the government. Like We want to be on his right and on his left. We want to be sitting pretty, and so let's go ahead and ask him if we can have those before anybody else asks him. I mean, it's, it's a bit insensitive, isn't it? Jesus is explaining to them what he's about to go through, and they're thinking to themselves, what's in it for me, what's in it for me, what's in it for me? But quite honestly, can we be too critical? I mean, we wake up every day, and that's a question that runs through our mind, isn't it? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Well, even though they tried to whisper and keep the other ten from hearing, they heard what they had asked. And when they heard, it just went from bad to worse. When they heard, Mark tells us this, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Not indignant because we can't believe that you'd be so insensitive to Jesus. As you're going to see, they were indignant because James and John beat them to asking the question. They were indignant because they beat them to the best seats in the house. So they're all mad, and they're all going, no, 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 that's not fair. You shouldn't let James and John have them. You should let me have them. Because, again, they just believe, okay, we don't know why you're going through what you're going through, Jesus, but on the other side of it, you're going to rule the entire world. This is, why, this is why they had stayed with Jesus so long. This is why they had stayed with him through all the hard times, because they believed in the end there was going to be a big payoff for them. So they're going, on the other side of this, okay, we, we think we deserve the seat. No, I deserve the seat. No, I, and they're arguing among themselves. So Jesus decides, i got, I got to deal with this. So he pulls the 12 aside again, stops the whole journey to Jerusalem, you know. He sits them down. And he begins to explain something to them, have a conversation with them that's so pivotal, so pivotal. Here's what he says to them. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. This is just his way of saying, you know how it works in this world. Whenever somebody gets power, whenever someone has influence, whenever someone has wealth, whenever someone, you know, gets to the top, so to speak, then the assumption is everybody is there to serve them. You know how it works. Whenever you have power, the people under you, they're there for one reason, to make your life better, to make your life easier. People have power, they look around, and everybody around them, they think, you're here for me, you're here for me, you're here for me, you're here for me, and it's all about them. Everything in everybody's life revolves around the person who has the most power. He says, you've watched this happen with the Romans, right? And they're going, yeah. You've watched this happen with the Jewish religious leaders, right? Yeah. We, we see the same thing, don't we? Nothing has changed. You know, we're 2,000 years later, everything still works this way in the world. It's just, just the way it operates. It's just the way we think. 
that it's, it's all about me. And so if I can get here, and if I can achieve this, and if I can accomplish this, if I can get in this place, because we still believe, just like they did, we still believe that prominence is the path to greatness. Okay, now I don't know how you define prominence for you. It's different for all of us. But we all have a belief that prominence is gonna, what's going to lead to greatness. In other words, well, if, if I can just make this amount of money, or if I can just achieve this in my career, or if I can just reach this point among the team where I'm leading the team, and if I can, if I can, if I can, or if, if, I have, uh, if I have this kind of popularity, or I'm friends with these people, or this kind of person loves me. Like it, we all define it differently, but it all comes back to this idea. We believe if I can just be prominent in this area, then I'll be great. Then I'll have the, the big office, or then I'll have the respect of, and then everybody will be serving me, and they'll do what I say, and they'll be listening. Then I'll have the position I need to, uh, to lead. You know, we, we all think it comes back to some definition of prominence. Jesus says, okay, well, this is the way it works in our world. He says, you guys have been watching. You know this is how everybody operates. It's normal. You just assume prominence is a path to becoming great. And then he introduces an idea. I'm telling you, I can't overstate this. He introduces an idea that was so foreign to the first century. Now, it's not quite as foreign to us today, although it's still pretty rare. But we see it every now and then because Jesus taught it 2,000 years ago, and he modeled it. But in the first century, they'd never seen this. This was, this was a brand new concept. But he introduces a brand new perspective or a brand new worldview, a brand new way to look at your life. That was so countercultural. And I'm telling you, when we read it in just a second, you will find something, if you begin to think about what it would be like to live your life this way, you will find something in yourself resisting it. I find something in myself resisting it because it's just so hard to do. So looking at his, you know, 12 closest friends, here's what he says to them You know how it works in this world. But not so with you. And those four words changed everything. Not so with you. Not so with you. Yep. There's a, if you're following me, Jesus would say, if you're my friend, there's a higher bar for you. There's a greater standard. If you're following me, you've got to live your life in an entirely different way. Because prominence actually isn't the road to greatness. It's not going to get you there. there. There's a different way. So you may look around and you may see other people treat one another that way. You may look around and you may be treated that way by people who have power or influence or position above you. But that's not what you're going to do and that's not how you're going to live. And if it was in essence Jesus saying, if you ever, because he knew they would one day, if you ever find yourself with a little power, with a little influence, with a little position, with a little advantage in life, you are not going to use it the way everybody around you uses it. Not so with you. He goes on. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, notice he didn't say, you guys shouldn't be trying to be great. No, he said, okay, okay you want to be great? Great. That's awesome. I created you to be great. You're gifted for greatness. You ought to try to be great. You want to be first? Of course you should want to be first. Jesus says, I have no problem with you wanting to be first. Who wants to be second, third, or fourth? You want to be first. He said, that's fine. I'm just telling you, if the way you think you're going to be great and the way you think you're going to be first is the way everybody else is trying to do it, you're never actually going to get there. Because it's the wrong approach. The right approach is for you to take whatever power, whatever influence, whatever you know, position, whatever opportunity you have, and leverage it for the benefit of all the people around you. 
It is not to get to that point so everybody can serve you. It is to get to that point so you can turn around and serve everybody. So you can put the needs and interests and desires of all the people around you before yourself. That's what you should do with your life. It's so you can live a life that's focused on we before me, we before me, we before me. Yeah, I've got a little bit of power and I've got a little bit of position. And yeah, according to the org chart, according to the depth chart, according to this, according to this, you're supposed to listen to me. No, no, no. It's we before me. I'm here for you. You're not here for me. Jesus said, you want to become great. This is where you have to start. This is what you have to do first. Because the foundation to discovering your purpose in life, the foundation, the starting point to becoming great, is acknowledging and embracing this truth that it's not about you. It is not about you. Your life is not about you. It's actually about the you beside you. Now, after first service, there was a lady who came up to me and said, that is the best message I've ever heard you preach because my husband was sitting next to me and I made sure he knew I was the you beside him. That's not what I'm meaning, ladies, okay? Don't use that against your husbands. But your life, it's not about you. My life, it's not about me. Jesus said, no, 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 you're never going to get it until you understand it's not about you. Life is actually about the you beside you. Now, I don't know a tactful way to say this, so I'll just say it. You are way too small a purpose to live for. If you're going to spend your whole life living for you, you're going to get to the end of life and you're not going to have much to show for it. As a matter of fact, if you live your entire life for you, you'll get to the end of your life and you'll have nothing to show for your life but your life. Which means when you disappear, everything about you disappears with it. Your life's way too small a purpose to live for. But everything about us, about our nature, sucks us into thinking, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. And you live your life that way and you never break out of that. You never embrace this idea it's not about you. You'll get to the end of your life and you'll finally realize, oh my gosh, I spent my whole life focused on the wrong thing. I spent my whole life walking down the wrong road. And it'll be too late to do anything about it. But you are way too small a purpose to live for. It is not about you. Now, let me just pick on those of us who call ourselves Christians for a minute, okay? When I talk to people who consider themselves Christians and we start talking about purpose in life, the question that I'm always asked is, well, Matt, I just want to know what God's purpose is for my life. I just want to know his plan for my life. I'd just like to know what his will is for my life, however you say that. And those are the wrong questions. Now, you think you've decided it's not about you because you're saying, I want to know God's purpose for my life. But what are the last two words of that question? My life. See, the reason you can't get clarity around your purpose in life is because you still think it's all about your life. You're trying to figure out your purpose in life so your life will be the best it can be. And you assume if you can ever figure out your purpose, then your life's going to go pretty well and it's going to be pretty smooth and you're going to experience all the dreams and hopes and desires that you have. It's still all about you. You're, you're focused on nothing and no one but yourself. It's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is not what's God's purpose for my life, but just what's God's purpose. In other words, what's he doing in this world? What's he want me to be doing when I join him and what he's doing in this world? We're going to talk more about this in a couple weeks. But the reason I say that's the right question is because a creation can never discover its own purpose. You never know the purpose of a creation unless you ask the creator. That's why when you begin to take your focus off of you and you, when you put your focus on your creator, your purpose starts to be clarified. 
Now, if you're not a Christian, you've got your own ways to figure this out, and you can navigate through this however you want, but I'm just telling you, I think it's going to be really hard for you to figure out your purpose in life if you don't ask the one who created you to begin with. And you have to start with this fundamental belief that you live out every single day, that it's not about you. Now, here's the good news. When you embrace this, everything changes. When you embrace this, everything gets a little more clear. Matter of fact, once it's not about you, then you'll see what to do. I want to know what I should do in my life. Well, start here. Make it not about you. And I'm telling you, once it's not about you, you'll start to figure out what it is that you ought to do with your life. It'll start to become more clear. Let me see if I can explain it this way. So, most of us live our lives this way. Metaphorically, it's like we go through every single day living our life with a mirror right in front of our face. Because this is what our focus is every day. My focus is me every single day. When I wake up, my first thought's about me. I go through my day, I deal with the stuff I got to deal with, I go to school, I go to work, whatever I'm doing, focus is all about me. It doesn't mean I can't see you, like I can see all of you, but here's the beauty of this. The beauty of this is you're not front and center in the picture, you're in the background. I'm front and center in the picture, which means I'll see what's going on in your world every now and then, and I'll pay attention to it. But real quickly, I come back to, well, what's in it for me? Well, I could help them, but how's that going to impact me? Well, I could, you know, talk to them, but what's that? Well, I could give some time to them, but, you know, what's in it? Everything comes back to me. It doesn't take long before I get my eyes off of you back on the good-looking dude in the mirror. It's going to be all about me. It's going to be all about me, and it's all about you. Now, we don't ever think of it this way. If someone accused us of this, we would say, oh, no, 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 that's not how I am. But let's be honest. This is how most of us live every single day. It's all about what's in the mirror. I'm front and center, and I see you and I notice you every now and then. But in the end, it doesn't take long for everything to revert right back to what I see in the mirror. And that's my primary focus. And this is what Jesus is trying to get at. This is what he's trying to get at with his guys who are literally living their life like this. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to die, and here's what's going to happen. And all they're doing is staring in the mirror. So he says, at some point, if you're going to understand your purpose in life, you have to make a change. you got to lay down your mirror, and you got to start living your life looking out the window into the wonderland of the purpose all around you. Now, here's the thing about living your life this way. When you live your life this way, your focus, my focus, it's on all of you. It's on all of you. When I live my life looking out a window instead of in a mirror, I notice everything going on around me, and I see everything happening with you. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not in the picture. I'm still in the picture. You know this. When you stand in a, stare out a window, if you pay attention and you look carefully enough, there's a reflection of you right in the glass pane. You're in the picture. You're just not front and center in the picture. It's about everybody else, but in the process of making it about everybody else around you, you find where you're supposed to be in the middle of the picture. This is all Jesus was trying to help them understand. That once it's not about you, then you'll see what to do. Once it's not about you, then you begin to notice the wonderland of purpose that's all around you. As long as it's about you and you've got a mirror right in front of your face, though, you're going to miss it entirely. Now, it's real easy for us to all say, well, that's how I want to live, and that's how I try to live, and I think I'll do a pretty good job of that. But that's not reality. For most of us, come on, be honest, we wake up every day thinking about what's in it for me. We wake up every day thinking about and expecting to be served in certain ways instead of asking ourselves, well, how can I best serve them and them and them and them? 
How can I add value to them? How can I help them out? How can I encourage them to take a step? It's not front and center for us. And if you think, well, yeah, I do a pretty good job of that, well, let me just ask you this. How do you respond emotionally whenever, whenever somebody treats you like a servant? How do you respond emotionally whenever someone expects you to serve them in some way? Or how do you respond emotionally whenever you go into an environment where you expect to be served and you don't get served very well? See, that emotional response, that gives away what's really going on in our heart. That gives away that we're still holding on to a mirror. We're not looking out a window. That's why Jesus said, guys, it's going to take you a while to get this. But if you follow me, not so with you, not so with you, not so with you. It's got to be we before me. Your greatness is going to come as you put people before yourself. And as you figure out how to make it not about you, but about the people that are all around you. Now, the thing that I love about this is Jesus had the credibility to teach this. Jesus had the credibility to challenge all of us on this because he did it better than anyone. That's why he ends his little conversation with the guys this way. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If there's anyone, it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus, we can probably all agree on this. You may not believe he died and rose again, but most people believe he was at least a good teacher. So we can probably all agree on this. If there's anyone who's ever walked this earth who deserved the right to make it all about them, it was Jesus. If anyone's ever walked this earth and he had the right to make everything revolve around himself, it was Jesus, and yet he chose not to do it. If anyone ever walked this earth and had the right to be served by everyone he met, it was Jesus, and he chose to serve instead. If anyone had the right to expect everyone to give to him and to take from everyone around him, it was Jesus. But he chose to give his life away anyway. We consider Jesus great today. Not because of what he took, not because of a position he held, not because of the way he was served and how many people served him. We consider Jesus great today because he lived his entire life pursuing one extraordinary purpose, to make a way for you to have a relationship with your Heavenly Father. To give his life, as he says, is a ransom for many. We consider him great because he chose to die and rise again to pay the penalty for all of our sins and invite us into God's family. That's why we consider him great. Not because he was served, but because he served. Not because he lived his life with a mirror, but because he lived his entire life looking out a window, serving the people who were all around him. And so he has the credibility, if anyone does, to look at us and say, okay, if you're a follower of mine, if you're not, you, you figure out how you want to become great. But for those of you who follow me, not so with you, not so with you, not so with you. Don't you dare get a little bit of power, a little bit of influence, and use it for the benefit of yourself above the benefit of the people all around you. You're to be the servant of all. People who deserve to be served by you and people who don't. You're to live your life looking out the window at the wonderland of God's purpose all around you. It starts by making it not about you. So, as we wrap up, here's what I want to encourage you to do. What do you do with this this week? The reality is you, you can't just change and I can't just change our behaviors and our natural tendencies to focus on ourselves. We can't change all that in a week. So what do you do? Well, here's what I want to invite you to consider. 
Would you spend the next seven days and maybe spend the next six weeks with us exploring what it might look like in your life and in your world if you did put down the mirror and you lived looking out a window? What would it look like in your world if you actually took to heart this idea of not so with you? What would it look like if you woke up every day and the thing that drove your actions, your thoughts, your behaviors was not what's in it for me? but what's best for the people all around me? What if you went into every environment, every experience, every team, every group of people, and your thought was not, what can they do for me, but your thought was, what can I do for them in this time I'm with them? What would it look like, and how might your life be different if you embrace that idea? For some of you, what would it look like just to explore who Jesus is and try to figure out what you believe about him? Because you're not sure. And maybe for you, that'd be the next best step. Because I'm telling you, I think it's going to be really hard to figure out your purpose if you don't know the one who made you for a purpose. So you owe it to yourself to at least figure out what you believe or don't believe about Jesus and why. And if you come to the conclusion he's not who he said he was, well, that's your choice. We respect that. But you should at least explore it and make sure you've done your homework. So what would it look like for you? To have some conversations with some friends, maybe to ask some questions. Maybe for you it's to open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, these four accounts of Jesus' life told from different perspectives and just read one of them. Maybe for you that's your next step. For some of you, you've been exploring this for a while and your next step would be to actually choose to follow Jesus. And the reason you haven't done that, you've got a lot of reasons that you tell people, but come on, be honest with yourself. The reason you haven't done that is because you know the minute you do that, you have to lay down a mirror and you have to start looking out a window. And none of us want to do that naturally. You know the minute that you follow Jesus, you have to have enough humility to say, it's not about me anymore. But I'm telling you, you'll never experience and discover your purpose in life. You'll never be great the way Jesus defined greatness until you do that. So maybe for you, that's your step. I bet there's a lot of us in here who we say we follow Jesus and everything's good, and I think I got this figured out, but the reality is we just trust Jesus with the stuff we don't have control of and we know we don't have control of. But when it comes to our life and our dreams and the things that we're trying to achieve and accomplish, we're still holding on to it. It is with closed fists. We're not going to do what he says to do. When we read something like that, something in us resists. I get it. I'm the same way. And says, yeah, but if I spend my life looking out a window focusing on others before myself, I'm going to miss out on the life I want to live. And see, it's all about trust. You've got to decide if Jesus actually cares about you enough to want what's best for you and know what's best for you, or if you do. What would it look like if you just opened up your hand and said, okay, maybe I will trust him with this. Maybe I will figure out how to make sure everything in my life doesn't revolve around me. Maybe I will sacrifice and cost myself some things to give some time, to give some money, to give some effort, to give some help to people around me. What would that look like? Here's what I know. This is what Jesus taught. Prominence. However you define prominence, it is not the path to greatness. Purpose is the path to greatness. And once it's not about you, once you can embrace that truth, then you will see what you should do. And we will pick it up right there next week. Let me pray for us. Father, this is so much easier to... Um, seeing other people than it is to seeing ourselves. And quite honestly, it's a lot easier just to dismiss and convince ourselves that we're good. But would you help us today and over the next seven days to 
when we find ourselves in moments where everything's being filtered through the lens of what's in it for me, when everything's revolving around me, help, help me to see those moments and to recognize and at least to consider what it might look like in that moment. If it wasn't about me, if it wasn't about you, if it was about the you beside you, what it would look like if I put down the mirror and I tried to live in that moment looking out the window. For those who, they're not even sure what they believe about you or what they think about you, would you just give them enough courage to be willing to explore it? What, a, what an incredible step. Give them the courage to do that. So they can figure out for themselves if you are who you claim to be. Because if, if it's true, if you are, then purpose is going to be found in you. For those of us who are followers of you, but, boy, everything in our world still revolves around us. This week, just remind us that you looked at your friends and you sent this message to us that, no, 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 not so with you. This is not how you are going to live if you're going to follow me. Help us to get better at living the way you lived, at following the example you set. And for those who have been resisting following you because they knew the minute they did it, they had to put down a mirror and look out a window. Would you give them the courage right now in this moment to do that? to be willing to humble themselves enough to acknowledge, God, I need you, I need your forgiveness, and I don't want to spend the rest of my life making it about me because I'm too small a purpose to live for. I want, to, I want to live for something bigger than myself. And if they'll just take that step, you'll show them, you'll guide them, you'll, you'll help them discover the wonderland of purpose. It's all around them. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with this, courage to do it even when it's hard. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.